I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, welcome. Thank you very much for the introduction and um, welcome, a very warm welcome to Ramsey. Um, I want to say a little bit about him because this theme of this festival is um, history and memory. And they talk in the literature about the scars left in lands and people by both those things. But I think we are also probably celebrating the riches left partly by scars and partly by um, the layers of all sorts of other things. And Ramsey's extraordinary life and work to date seems to sort of sum this up. So for those of you who don't know his work, just a little bit about him, if that's all right with you. <laughs> um, he was born in Rotterdam in 1974, and he's currently Poet Laureate of the Netherlands. We will come on to that in a moment. His father is Palestinian, and his mother is a Dutch Catholic. And he's... Um, performed prize-winning monologues. He's played Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. He's directed opera singers in Mozart's Die Entführung aus dem Sarai alongside a classical Arabic singer. Um, and in 2006, he was awarded the prize of journalist for peace. So he is somebody who um, shifts between prose and poems in a way that I find very interesting and I would love to ask you about. Um, but, and he went to drama school. He graduated from drama school with a monologue which won him Best Actor at the International Drama School. I'm sorry this is embarrassing, but it's this... No. <laughs> we just had a huge lineup of what you did, so... Uh. <laughs> yeah, trust the balance of it. Um, and, um, and he also wrote a libretto for Levin in Hell, an, an operetta about life in hell in which he sang the role of Hades himself. Um, so you can see that there are all sorts of sort of different, you turn the crystal and you see another, another facet. But all through that, he's been publishing poems. And um, the first poem he wrote after he got appointed and elected, you get elected in Holland um, as Poet Laureate in 2009, was inspired by Vermeer's painting, Woman Holding a Balance. And I, it seemed to me when I was, I had the luck and privilege to, to write a little um, welcome note for, his, for this translation of his work. And um, it seemed to me on, on, on immersing myself in the work that balance along with this extraordinary depth of historical context is one of the key things or in an abstract way anyway to his work. 
And uh, but he's always interested in alternative perspectives. For instance, in this book, there's a wonderful poem about Mala, Mala being played, the, the, as it were, the Jewish, um, what, what happened to Jewish musicians and composers in, under the Third Reich, and under Hitler. Um, he was city poet of Antwerp, and he located his Antwerp poems for them in a sort of very detailed commentary and historical photographs of the city so that the poetry is always rooted in place, in other people's memories, in giving things to other people, it seemed to me, as well as um, a dance between um, himself and the world. And um, I would like you first, please, would it be all right if you read us the poem and told us a little bit about how you get appointed to be Poet Laureate of the Netherlands and um, what you have to do to apply? Yes, well, um, as... As you know, we're the most democratic country in the world, uh, the Netherlands, so completely flat, so to speak. And um, being a poet laureate, you would consider it an honorary function. Well, that only extends to the fact that it's non-paid. So, um, but for the rest, you're elected. You're being elected or not elected to be a, a poet laureate. Um, actually. At the end of uh, 2008, uh, first a, li a, a long list was being uh, made uh, for uh, well, consisting out of ten poets, and then after that a short list, five poets, and they were being asked to write a poem about the well, the last year, about the current Dutch situation, and on basis of that poem that had been published in a Dutch newspaper, uh, the leading Dutch newspaper of Holland, NRC Handelsblad. Um, and on basis of a profile, a short uh, CV, people could, uh, well, say I would like him or her to become the next poet laureate for the next, uh, the, for the next four years. And um, so what I'm now going to read is, was actually my auditioning uh, poem. So Let's see. Um, it's, uh, what struck me um, when I... I was thinking, what should I write about? But what struck me is that I didn't know about what country specifically I was talking. Because usually, when you think of the glory of the Netherlands, you think of Vermeer, Rembrandt, 17th century. But and even 50 years ago, we would, we would still have a completely different image of w what Holland was about. We were considered a very clean and very, like, uh, very work a working people, but if I watch my own um, uh, compatriots um, nowadays, nobody, it, it's a completely different people, the people from the 17th century, they were trenched in a feeling of guilt, etc., and that's all gone now, so we now, we're now bungee jumping, etc., but it's a bit different, uh, di different country, and then about this was the uh, is the next poem. It's, uh, I, I, it's called I Wish I Was Two Citizens Then I Could Live Together. It's based upon a, a rhyme, a very famous rhyme in Holland. Ik wou dat ik twee hondjes was, dan kon ik samen spelen, which means I wish I were two dogs, then I could play together. It's a very famous rhyme in Holland. I wish I was two citizens, then I could live together. And this is my poem. Come on in. Don't be afraid. Ignore the echo, let us begin in emptiness. Welcome to my crater of light. 
Once we gathered, you and I, remember? Revived by the cool gleam of a rummer, our shadows like finest crystal, our fame as glancing as the light that falls on a letter read by a woman becalmed. We were gold-dusted, pale, almost translucent with love, lowering our eyes before each other. And we loved to do penance. If someone asked how we were, we answered truthfully, ashamed to our boots, sir, firmly convinced that we ourselves had scourged our very own Lord and crucified him personally. The certainty of the apocalypse was branded on our retinas. What happened in the few short centuries we looked the other way? I hoped to show you a fatherland, formal, pure, and with sustained metaphors molding a poem about us. But when I began, I had to look on while one nation spontaneously wiped out the other, like two irreconcilable republics. How did we move so fast from humble to rude, from a glimmer to an omnipotent present shrieking crew, how could careful caterpillars give rise to this Hummer tribe? They say, because God disappeared, our father had decided to make himself even more invisible to see if it was possible. No, it wasn't. And God was gone. And in this still life with absentee, the astonished Netherlands now stood Mouths full of mortality, full of frivolity and highly regarded death wish. All their vanity had been revealed as vanity. The gleam of them, the dust they embraced, the palace of mirrors peoples once took for eternity had been declared unfit for habitation. The frost crackled on our souls. And out of that gap, we were born. Kevin, Ramsey, Dunya, Dagmar, Roman, and Charity, appearing as if by magic, bungee jumping with inflatable orange hammers, screaming and screeching and antidepressive, or gang-banged in silence for a breezer, a big welcome to the nether regions. Yes, that's what you get. This is what's left when you ram the guilt out of our bodies. We fill the hole with gleaming emptiness. Between psalm singing and pill popping, between gold and bling, I found a country where everything must go. This land is the revenge of the forefathers. Like an iconoclastic fury, they rage on in us, but it exists. Like the connection between burkas and kids' padded bikinis exists. Between buttermilk and binge drinking, concave and convex, our centuries slide together. Canceling each other out is our strength. Our nature strives for emptiness, like a cyclops longs for depth. 
You see, I wanted to show you a fatherland, not this desert of infinite freedom, but this is where we live. And how beautiful it would be if someone, one day, like a second-hand deity, could build a country, rhyme by rhyme, for this nation that misses its nation. Here, of all places, in the open pit of our heart, we can achieve something great. A poem's a start. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised the Dutch nation voted you in, but um, what, what about comments on it? What do they, how do they feel about some of this? Um, well, they, they thought it was too long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, people always my, my poems have a tendency yeah. to stretch out. Um, but actually, it was, well, it was a, the, the response was positive. Mm. We, we have this in our... Uh, we have this in us, this feeling of guilt, this, this scourging. I, I, I didn't know whether I pronounced it right, scourging, scourging. Um, we want us ourselves to suffer. So, so they liked it, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so you have written one long poem about Calvinism, haven't you? Yeah, a long psalm. Well, they didn't like that one. Actually, that was in the newspapers. And... Uh, I wrote, I wrote a poem, Psalm for an Origin. There was an exposition in Holland uh, about f uh, 500 years ago in 2009. Uh, Calvin was born. And Calvin is our... Um, it's like a yawn. If, you, if I yawn, you will start yawning as well. Even if you're, if you, even if you're brought up a Catholic or even brought up non-religious... Uh, you still have this Calvin inside you. I don't know what's, what's the word for it. Um, I call it a stuitje van Calvin, which means it's, it's, the, it's, the back, it's the bone, the piece that's left. We, we all had tails. Coccyx. 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 Sorry. Well, I call it the cock... Oh, the cock... Oh, coccyx. I call it the coccyx of Calvin. It's still inside us. It has no function, but we still use it. We're still ashamed of using our body. If you see Dutch people dancing, it's, it's terrible. It's like, you know, we have this... Uh, it's, we just can't. Even if, even if you hate Calvin, he's still there. So I wrote a poem about him, and um, I, I asked him, if you're there... I mean, God, I was addressing myself to God. I said, please show yourself, because I would like to feel you, to get a response, but you're not there. And then I found out, you are there. You're this coccyx. You're, you're inside <laughs> me. But if you, really want to, if you really want to be a God, you have to grow. You have to show yourself, rise up in me. And then I, you have this, the song of songs, all these beautiful sexual metaphors. So... I said, rise up in me like, uh, uh, well, the old, the old biblical terms. And it was in the, U, the, large, the big church of Dordrecht, which has a very specific meaning for the Protest Protestantism. It was the place where William of Orange, uh, for the first time, uh, showed himself to be a Protestant, to, to be converted from Catholicism. And the queen was there, and the crowd was full with theologians. And so, 
and they hated me. Well, the queen loved it, but the, they, and they, they said, you have to, one day, and with last judgment, you will have to account for this. And I said, well, maybe my poem is my trying to account, uh, is my, this is, the, maybe the poem is what I want to, is my connection to God. Well, anyhow. Well, but what about? So, but t tell me about. Um, did, did you have is, is Islam in your in your background as well? I mean, you, with a Catholic well, and a Muslim my, as parents, what happened there? Well, well, the strange thing is, I'm I was brought up neither Catholic nor Islamic. I'm I'm sort of a I don't know uh, nothing. Uh, but my parents made a nice, good decision. They said, you find out for yourself what's the truth, and find out for yourself. But they couldn't know that out of these, this half-half Muslim and this half-half Catholic, neither of them prayed, etc. it's just a cultural background, out of these half-half Catholicism and Muslim, a very, inf a very Protestant infidel would arise. <laughs> be, and I, I'm, I'm always, I have this feeling of guilt, of that I'm not doing the right thing. And well, let's, let's hear about, um, about the music, because clearly you have done rather a lot of right things in, in music. Um, but I was... I'm not even a musician. It's a <laughs> um, well, tell me, can you read some of the, the Mahler poem and tell, talk us a little bit, about, a bit through it? Because mm. the poem is structured around a Mahler symphony. And yeah. it's very movingly, it goes through the sort of 1940s and as it were, the, the Jewish lights going out um, of the German orchestras. It's a very, it's a, one, it's a black page in Dutch yeah. history and it's not, not, but more specifically, the Dutch, um, or the, we have the famous Concertgebouw Orchestra and there's a very dark, dark period that we all want to forget and that is the period when we wanted please the Nazis in a way and by trying to please them hoping that it will it will all end happily ever, ever after and that it will all end very soon this whole war but it didn't end it became worse and worse and worse so it's about it's based on this four, on the fourth symphony Mahler's fourth symphony and it would take too much time to expand but it's the longest poem I ever wrote it's in four parts and I tried to Actually, I made a joke there saying I'm not even a musician, but me not being a musician and, and being a, a poet, this for me, writing poetry is for me the, the, a way of composing. It's as close to music as I will get. That's why also music is a very, has a very large, my poetry has a large element of music. The, the distinction between poetry and music for me is that poetry is music with meaning. Um, so I try to follow the tempo, the atmosphere of the work. It's in, it's in four parts. It also has an, an allegro, etc. It's in four parts, and it's actually the title poem of this of this exactly book, heavenly, life, heavenly life, like like the the last uh, <laughs> movement of the fourth symphony of Mahler. And I will read a part. It's I. And it shows how I, um, I, I listen to the music all the time. So I try to approach the original atmosphere of the movement. But of course, and it, it's an historical poem in four parts. It, it starts in 1902 when Mahler meets Mengelberg. And Meng it's in fact about Meng also about Mengelberg, the famous uh, conductor of the Concertgebouw Orchestra, who was a personal friend of Mahler, who made Mahler big 
in Amsterdam. Uh, and at the same time, in the Nazi time, after Mahler died, of course, uh, in the Nazi times, uh, he tried to appease the, the, the Nazis. I will do a, a small part of the adagio, but actually it's, it's the first time I read it out in, uh, it's the first time I read it out in English. We must remember that, I that did it in you're, you're, you're actually not reading your own words, you're reading No, actually it's not David's my poem words. anymore, mm -hmm. that's true. And that's a compliment to David Colmer. Uh, this, these are his poems. Um, it's the adagio, and it's a specific part in uh, history. So as I told you, all the four parts, they uh, deal with a specific period. Um, the adagio is the period 40, 45. And uh, it starts when the, on the moment when Rotterdam was, had been bombarded, by, had been bombed by the, uh, the Nazis. I'm not sure where, where I will stop, but I will just... So, third part. Ruovol, poco adagio. The most beautiful adagio Mahler ever wrote. On a passacaglia plucked out by the bass players, bass players, a melody comes floating in, completely disengaged with the strings. First, the cellos. The air in the theater is sluggish. Everything seems frozen in an unreal calm. Rotterdam has been reduced to rubble. Mengelberg is in Germany. People say he drank champagne with the Germans. Even before the port has stopped smoldering, a request for free tickets for German officers arrives at the Concertgebouw. Violas pick up the theme. Gently, they take the ends of the floating melody and play with it in counterpoint, together with a few cellos. During the bombing, the Rotterdam Philharmonic's library, concert hall and rehearsal rooms were destroyed, along with many of its instruments. Twenty-six members of the orchestra have lost everything. Rotterdam has lost itself. The Netherlands has lost its leaders. The Concertgebouw organizes a benefit. Without the boss, the podium is empty and abandoned, but here conductors are not necessary. Second violins start automatically a tenth higher, varying freely on the cello's themes. In July 1940, Mengelberg is photographed in Berlin together with his wife, smiling at a poster announcing a performance by the Berlin Philharmonic, conductor Willem Mengelberg. First violins join in. They repeat the opening theme, several octaves higher, rarefied, rising, adding layers of bliss one after the other. Supported by the rhythm of the double basses, the cellos rise, the violas push off, the second violins come off the ground, and the first violins ascend, one by one, coming together in a mist. They disappear concert master leading the way. He disappears first. Sam Swab is a former member of the Concertgebouw Orchestra. In the summer of 1940, he leads the first violins of the residency orchestra. There in The Hague, after the concert, the Jew makes a mistake. He, ex he accepts the conductor's outstretched hand. Mr. Swab's music stand was moved slightly to the rear. And the Jew played on, less visibly, 
not shrieking like death, but like a man in a fairy tale, and highly civilized The Hague. It's only a fragment, a short uh, fragment, but it deals on, uh, with how it, it moves on and on. In the end, other Jewish uh, members of the orchestra, they are being pushed away to, more to the back so that they would not be that visible for the audience. And in the end, um, the Reichskommissar uh, demanded that all the Jewish members would leave. And they did. They, did, they left after a performance of the Ninth Symphony of, uh, of uh, Beethoven. So, alle Menschen werden Brüder, and they left. And I, I did this in the Concertgebouw I, some months ago. The, on, the 4th of May we, on the 4th of May, we have Remembrance Day, uh, commemorating the, the, de the, de the death uh, of the Second World War. I'm sorry for my English every now and then. It's not so bad, uh, not so good, I mean. Well, that's the cover. <laughs> <laughs> but at this, when I, when we did this, I read, out, I read out the names of the members, the Jewish members who left the orchestra, and we got a phone call the day before we did it, and, the, and it was one of the widows, and she said she's 99 years old, and she heard about us doing this um, reading and Mahler thing, and she said, can I come? And that was devastating. She was there with the... Um, the dress rehearsal, the only person in the hall. And I was mentioning her name on the, on the position where Mengelberg stood, you know, on the conductor's position with my back to the audience on the stage with, we had all these empty chairs for the Jewish, commemorating the Jewish members leaving and uh, having, being forced to leave. And I mentioned the name of her husband and it was, um, I can't explain how it was. Um, and we, Afterwards, after the concert, we got into touch with, with a, a man. He said, I'm the, I'm the son of the second person you mentioned. He said, thank you for, for erecting a monument for my father, because it's all I have left. He disappeared. He committed suicide. His ashes were spread. And this is the first time I have something concrete. Um, and that's why I. I would like to stress the fact that it is a joke. I mean, the poet laureate, it's an, it's, it's an ironic, I'm sorry, it's an ironic um, title in Holland. You know, Dichter des Vaderlands means poet of the fatherland. It's, uh, it's ironic. But I think you can write about something that is not just, you know, the, uh, the, the queen giving birth to, or, or the queen, <laughs> queen's <laughs> son or daughter giving birth to another son. Or getting married. Mm. Yes. Exactly. Um, well, By the way, I can choose my own topics. I, I don't have any uh, assignments or something. They, I get assignments, so I'm, I get requests all day, every day, but it's good. I, I can decide when I think something is uh, worth writing about. But I mean, presumably, I mean, in that poem, you are very, very engaged with what Holland is, partly because you are not only Dutch. Yeah, probably. And then there's still people who want me to, want me to go back to Gaza. I mean, I'm yes, not even from Gaza. They think yeah. I'm from Morocco or something. And then, <laughs> But me uttering something about Holland, about the beautiful, pure country of Holland, is already treason. So they say, why do we pay 
what's the word for it? Subsidy? No, subsidies <laughs> for people like you. Go back to Gaza, be, be a poet over there. And uh, that's not once, I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of times on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a thick skin. I mean, the government is behind you. I mean, you, you get. No, I'm, I'm not. No, I think <laughs> <laughs> one of my poems was exactly about our new cabinet and that uh, <laughs> they didn't like that at all. No. Well, I have seen a piece you wrote which is about what's um, partly about your father's village. You might perhaps talk a little bit about that and about. Um, Dutch policy in the Middle East. But I insist on reading some love poetry as well. Yes, Because yes. I don't want to, you know, it's, it's, I'm always pushed in the corner of, uh, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not, by you, by the, not by you, by the way, but there, uh, I write love poetry. I started as a love, uh, I mean, people Ramsey, said, Ramsey, you're read a love your dichter. Come on, read the dichterlieber. Okay. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> I can still remember when I, read, I, when I heard for the first time Dichterliebe by Schumann, uh, based on Heinrich Heine's uh, poems, love poems. I was, especially in the version by Fritz Wunderlich singing this, uh, the, the songs, and tears running from my eyes, and, and I felt a bit uh, uh, at un, uneasy and a bit betrayed because I could see myself sitting in my chair crying and then I you know you have the expression of uh, Adorno uh, saying after Auschwitz no more nightingales and I thought yeah you're right but at the same time why am I still crying because of a song based on a romantic poet um, dealing with eternal themes so what I try to do is I'm uh, very fond of Darwin and that's not because it's you but I'm a Darwinist to the backbone, is that the expression? To the coccyx. Uh, to the coccyx. <laughs> I'm a, <laughs> a Darwinist to the coccyx. That's a nice word, coccyx. Um, and what I try to do is, there are these images in these poems of uh, a, a man offering his heart to uh, a beloved, the heart falling in two, uh, splitting in, in two, and um, flowers growing from his own eyes. And what I try to do is to pick each poem and transport them to the year and now and to see what metaphors would still survive. So like putting them in a ter terrarium, is that the word? And then feeding them and see how they develop, whether they would mutate, whether they would survive. Some, some poems might become extinct, but I wanted to see what would still survive here and now. And the first poem is called Wondrous Month, based on Im, Wunder, Im Wunderschönen Monat Mai. In the merry month of May. It sticks to the original, sort of. Wondrous month. That was in the wondrous month of excess and of blossomings, when my chest swirled up like poppies, ribs splaying like gaudy quills. May cut loose my stingy tongue, consuming similes like fire water. Deeply shamed to my poldered soul, overcoated between the raindrop and the wind, insensitive to bushes, branches, thorns, I caught my death of light and rubbed it in. Transparent, humiliating, sparkle sneezing came upon me, a miracle. There I went. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code program. Less would be enough to shame the most, but this was my affliction, utter love. Then the next one deals with this, uh, uh, it's about a person who experiences the following. Uh, he has these eyes, lilies growing from his eyes, and he, at night he, he ponders how on earth, I mean, he's a very... Uh, scientific, he has a scientific mind, so he can only wonder how they came there. Selve, is that the right? Selve and compresses by candlelight. Awkward when flowers keep sprouting from eyes, rock hard on stalks, and then they open too in front of your nose, of course, why not? You can't see a thing, but hey, they're your flowers. At night, you sit there with selve and compresses by candlelight, trying to figure out how they grow there anyway, damn it. Past lens and through iris, a decent lacrimal papilla should manage that they clamp down on the point of crying, I'm only guessing too, but maybe if I personally, if I tried to phone that canal of schlem, palette after palette, until ruined and bloodshot, you fall asleep at last with rustling reeds on your eyes. Early next morning, it's back to cloying cherries, left and right, stumbling down pink trails, bad for brains in the long run, and no good either is swearing and hearing a choir of nightingales. Stay inside, Freddy Wonderlick. Sit on a chair at a table and write that letter. To the love of my life, if you are still willing to love, I will lovingly cut the flowers for you. I will put them in vases with fortifier, the two nighting gulls glued to your parents' windowsill will look back grumbling as silently we shrink into the healing night. 
Of course, Nightingale is a, it mutated. Uh, um, it didn't survive as Nightingale. Um, then one, maybe if possible, uh, it's called The True Lover. It's about pure love. And I don't know if you know, you know these, uh, especially young couples, so tremendously in love with each other that they have the tendency to forget about the whole of the outer world. They're very irritating most of the time. <laughs> and <laughs> when they go, when they sit in the train and then you watch them and they, they own, they have these, also they, these, what's the word for it? They, they try to, um, they make everything cute. So they, uh, I mean, the world doesn't exist. Everything is nice and choo-choo-choo. And then there is another form of pure love, and that's people who can't deal with life because they're so full of love and nobody, well. And th this is about a man who throws himself in front of the train. And then uh, it's tragic already, but he becomes a nuisance as well because then the train will have a, uh, a delay and everybody in the, in the train will say, oh, it's... I am coming later again because this stupid guy threw himself, in, threw himself in front of the train again. Um, these forms of true love are, yeah, my introductions are longer than my poems. So, the true lover, the rose, the lily, the dove, the sun, monkey, Saturn, the hydrogen bomb, love's bliss encompasses a lot of things. Big and tangible, they fit easy in the midst of all crumbling lovers. For them, it's all A, Kapacha, Kapajava, B, Uchikuchi, C, Cuddly, Snuggly, Honey Bunny, D, High Sweetie, High Sugar Plum. Lovers trivialize the elements a tad. Stepping like armored children into their means of transport, sitting in that topsy-turvy choo-choo train that's come to a standstill for the second time this week because of the silly chappy underneath. Full of love, he too wanted to crush language with his hands like them, but in his own way. He took steps, exploding himself from element to vast, delaying chaos, sudden thaw and frost in one. Human bliss clings to stars and pollen, no miracle too big or small. For the blind with willpower, monkey is rose, dove, sun. The true lover admits no difference between a lily and a hydrogen bomb. Okay. It seems to me that it's extraordinary. Um, I love the way you read them as well, because it's full of sort of music and energy. Um, but I was thinking that in the voice of those, you've really sort of taken romanticism by the scruff of its neck and sort of given it a good shake. Yeah, it was. There's a literal, literally, I'm, uh, I'm mentioning that, that somebody in the end of, let's see where it is. I literally shake them, yes. Because um, you're not saying that romanticism is impossible or unimportant. You're, um, here. Calmly he hunted for remnants, lay awake beside her at night, found metaphors in bedside cabinets, pale cheeks, bittersweet tears, lay, lay sleeping next to smelly feet. He picked them up, not by jaws or scruff of neck, but bashed them still against the wall. 
heart to smithereens. <laughs> well, I want to I want to drag you away from from love poems for a moment into Africa because you you wrote you wrote this poem Homo Safaricus when you went off with sort of these field zoologists on expeditions. Yeah. And why did you do that? You just wanted to sort of. Shake some, give something else no, a good I was, shake. I was invited by the Antwerp, uh, University of Antwerp. I, I wrote a poem uh, for them being a city poet of Antwerp. And the sort of a connection arose. And um, um, they asked me to, first they asked me to come to join them on a trip to the North Pole, to Spitsbergen, with some students and with a, a biology, polar biology professor. So of course I said yes. And then the next year they asked, would you want to come and join us to uh, an expedition to Tanzania? So students, they will go on an expedition for the first time and uh, see uh, how it is. And you can write your diary. And they made a television series of that, a five-part five part television series. And the end of every, uh, the end of every um, edition, I read out my, my uh, diary, traveling diary, and uh, like grandfather tells a story and uh, and I was f actually I you had these biologists <laughs> these people being fascinated by insects they were crawling all, all over the place because there was one guy he knew everything about insects and this here he was I mean he was well it, it was fun they were following these uh, animals with their um, binoculars. binoculars I was following them they were my animals uh, with my binoculars and trying to write down what I could see of them and uh, trying to, they were for me, they were for me, uh, well, they, those were my animals. And then I was being followed as well by a camera. So it was, um, yeah, it was nice. Well, it was about habitat. And I just wondered if you could read that poem, Subhuman in his Habitat. I'm going to get <laughs> yeah. at this from another yeah, direction. What? This was a short bridge to come to the political poem it anyhow. No. Um, it's... Um, should find it, that's the only thing. Yes. Um, it's a poem I wrote for my father. Um, not that he still lives on the West Bank, but it's an imaginary father. I wrote it af after I, um, I mean, we know what happens with, with the West Bank at the moment about the checkpoints. People are trying to leave their villages to come from A to B and they have to stand in line waiting. And there was an article about people visiting the hospital in a nearby city, I mean, I think it was Ramallah, and they had to stand in the sun for hours and hours. There were people with diabe you know, diabetics, uh, people with cancer, coming back from chemo treatment and just having to stand there in the sun. And they were forced to climb over rocks, etc. That made me write this um, poem. It's called The Subhuman and His Habitat. Welcome to the land of milk and honey, where fig, almond, apricots grow unmetaphorically on accommodating trees. Eat of them and be my guest today. I'll pay your taxi to the first roadblock. My father waits behind the second roadblock He'll make you his guest of honor, too, with oil, bread, oregano, sesame. Stars lie motionless upon his roof. Sleep there 
and give him Nadir's love. The day to father is hard but essential. Try to find a kid with a barrow. Take donkeys or scramble on foot round the cliffs. Follow the others. Keep telling yourself, now we are animals. This is permissible. Wheelchairs go bouncing through dust back from the city where they cure the sick, diabetic with cancer in blazing sun. Many are old, many sick, many are sweating animals, but that's the whole idea. In the day, we are sweating, climbing animals because that's the whole idea. They beat and kick the animals to an end that one day we will give milk and honey. One day, mana will rain from human hands. If this seems insane to you, Habibi, just think that miles down the road, real girls and boys are sitting nervously outside Starbucks as an act of resistance, uproarious in fear of their lives. Well, in a minute, I'm going to invite questions from you. And of course, that raises huge questions. But I want to finish with this, which I think the LRB Bookshop has, <laughs> has yes. printed and published today for the first time. Because this is for The Hague. And The Hague has opened um, something called the House of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but we must also remember that The Hague is this place where this sort of international, of international um, law we hope. Yes. Um, so please read it. But yes. I would wonder, could you read some of it in, in Dutch? Because I think ah. it would be really nice just to hear the music of yeah. your own words. Would you like me to read it out first in Dutch, some strophes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the whole concept of poetry. If you don't understand it, it's music. So it's called The House of Europe. I will explain something later on. Het Huis van Europa. Mijn buurman heeft een continent bedacht. Een glooiend rijk met weinig eigenschappen, geen wind of echo, instapklare vlaktes maken het leven lang en af. De burgers zijn beschaafd aan alle kanten, volledig rond en eengemaakt, gelijken zij hun munten, talen hun tomaten, vredig rollen ze over straat. Ook in mij gedijt dat eindeloos verlangen naar orde, huiselijkheid. Buurman en ik, wij aanvaarden elkaar, vormen het schuim op onze idealen. It's very funny to watch you <laughs> while I read this. <laughs> Because I know for sure that you don't understand any, anything. And still, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, there are some Dutch-speaking persons. Okay. Um, how many of you are British, actually? <laughs> so, no, okay. Um, it's a... The poem is about, um, it's the latest poem I wrote, and I want to thank you very, very much for publishing this. I mean, it's incredible that, that, that you asked me to publish it. So, I, yeah, yeah. But we should give her Kate, a hand. Thanks very much. <laughs> Kate Griffin from the London Review Bookshop. Thank you. And I want to stress one thing, which is, I was m mentioning David Colmer, the translator, and I also would like... Uh, to mention Margaret Obank and Samuel Shimon of Banipal publishing, uh, Publishers. It is incredible to invite a complete stranger to do something that only, will only be a risk for you. 
Uh, I mean, it's the whole concept of, it's the whole nucleus of poetry, because poetry is marginal and non, a non-profit uh, occupation anyhow, but still, uh, this, without this volume of poetry in English, you would not be sitting here. I would, this is the reason why I, all of a sudden, in one of the most beautiful bookshops in London, exists. So thank you very much. <laughs> Um, I consider it my passport into literature, and this, in a way, uh, has the same theme. It's, uh, it's, it's called the House of Europe. In, in The Hague, at the moment, uh, an institution has been opened that's called the House of Europe, and it gives information about Europe. It's meant as a sort of a propaganda for the concept of Europe. You, people can, in a very informal way, get in touch with the European Union, uh, European Commission, etc. They can have, they can leave their questions, their remarks, complaints, etc. Um, it's meant as very something very low uh, profile, and no, not low profile. What's the Threshold. In Dutch we have an expression, low threshold, so that you can enter very easily. And the Queen was there, and our Prime Minister was there, all kinds of ambassadors, Barroso was there, and they asked me to make a poem. So this is uh, the latest poem I wrote in the function. The House of Europe. My neighbor conceived a continent, a rolling realm where features are few, no wind or echoes, just furnished plains to make our lives complete and long. The citizens are civilized to uniformity, rough edges gone and rounded off like their languages, their coins and tomatoes. They roll on down the road in peace. It also thrives in me, this endless longing for order, domesticity. My neighbor and I, accept each other. We are the froth on our ideals. But sometimes, when the world's on fire, just before I go to sleep, I think softly of my origins and smell you in the distance, where under, under smoothly boyish skin, a pit of gaping contradiction awakes a hundred thousandfold a hole full of Celts and Cathars, Etruscans, Moors and Magyars, reeking of milk and manly hides, of Visigoths and Proto-Slavs, lap hunters, head up north, vandals, settle at gut level, my flesh bulges and starts to melt, Basque, Saxon, Merovingians, hook onto tender ribs, in hordes I fall apart and come together turning into a good barba papa for all my traveling forebears. That's Europe with the works. My neighbor conceived a continent, but I need a room for my guests, a home for my mixed origins, or simply a barrel to sleep in. I need a place with discomforts, with old style corners, badly arranged, drafty and incomplete, but real, something to grip between cellar and roof. Build me a rusty house against the dizzy myths of the field of blackbirds, against the poppies of Poperinger and the gold teeth of Auschwitz. 
against a prospect of mist and purity, build me a difficult, painful house. Thank you. Well, um, that's wonderful, and um, I now want to open it up for questions. Is there a mic, a roving mic? Um, but I think, I think that this is absolutely characteristic of, of what I've been coming to get to know, and I got to know your poetry in these translations. It's, I need a place with discomforts, drafty and, in, drafty and incomplete, but real. Um, against, build me a rusty house against the dizzy myths of a field of blackbirds. I mean, I think that's absolutely crucial. Any questions? Yes, here. Just here. Um, hello. You've mentioned your translator, and I, th I just get the impression you do work fantastically well together. And could you say something about the relationship, how you, how you came together, why this translator? You know, uh, thanks. In, in a way, I could say sheer coincidence, because when my first few poems uh, have been trans had been translated, uh, were, trans were about to be translated into English. Um, the Production Foundation, it's called in Holland, it, 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 it makes sure that works are being translated into foreign languages. It's sort of an institution in Holland. Um, they, they just thought, well, maybe David Coleman is the right person to translate your poems. At that point, he had never translated poetry before. Um, and it was just coincidence in a way. Um, it was for a festival. They asked me to read. Uh, uh, they asked me to read out some poems, and they needed an English translation of these poems. And they we got together. Next time, I, I mean, it worked well. Next time, he, uh, I, I, I've been asked to to read at another international festival. And then again, oh, maybe we should ask David Comer. And in a way, in the beginning, he was very. Um, he had to get used to my strange way of writing because I have the tendency to, to sometimes twist an expression or to, to, to pick, to take a word out. And if you would translate it, it would seem as if he would be a ba very bad translator. Um, and he had to, he got, had to get used to my idiom. Um, am I, is that the right word? Idiosyncrasies? Uh, uh, and, that, and now I can give him this poem and he knows exactly what I like, what the musicality of, uh, of, of some words uh, and I give him freedom to, to write, to, to, I give him the liberty to change things every now and then and it works very well. Does in, he live in, in Rotterdam? Or where not in Rotterdam no, but no. In, the, in, Holland, in Amsterdam, yes. He's and he, he won a prize last, sorry? He's Australian. He's Australian and the last year he won a prize for translating, a, he won the, 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 the biggest prize for translations in uh, Holland for, uh, uh, it was a novel he, he had uh, translated. And, uh, he's very good. He's very good. And so, thanks to him. Sorry? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, you, you said that you thought that um, poetry was music with meaning. Mm. When you listen to Dichterliebe, do you have the feeling that the music 
imprints itself on the poetry to such an extent that afterwards, after you know that music, it's very difficult to read the poetry yeah. as itself. And the, the music does this often. It drags the meaning of the poems towards itself. Yeah. Uh, f first, uh, thank you. First of all, I would like to stress that the way I write poetry, I consider it music with meaning. But that doesn't mean, uh, I mean, poetry is as broad as life. Uh, there are many, many poets who don't consider music any part of their uh, uh, poetry. And most of the time, I like that kind of poetry. It's just not the way I write. So it's not a... It's not like a law that I would like to impose on poetry because anyone who likes to, under, to impose laws is being unpoetic in a way. Um, but then again, yes, if I, I think the, the fate of Heinrich Heine is, of course, that his, uh, and also of Wilhelm Müller, all these romantic poets, is that they became uh, intertwined with the, uh, the musical the tone setting. Uh, that, uh, uh, you have Die Winterreise. You cannot read the poetry of the, the poems of Die Winterreise a anymore without hearing somebody, maybe Peter Pierce, sing it. Um, yes, but I think it's one of the most beautiful fates that you can have as a poet. Uh, it's better than to be forgotten. But, there's, but there's, I mean, a musician might say, well, um, music can have a meaning without words. Yes, and I consider may, maybe I consider music an even more sublime art form than uh, poetry, because it's abstract. It's completely abstract. It's only ba 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 ba, and then a symphony. <laughs> it's incredible. It com if you think of it, it's it dazzles your mind. Uh, so for me, I think music is the most free and sovereign um, art form. And I think it's also the reason, I mean, because you use meaning, you use words that have an, a meaning in normal everyday life, it is also the art form that is being evaded most of the, uh, uh, it's the most evaded art form. Because people are frightened of these very, very thin books. They're frightened of it because it has a power to, to bowl them over. They don't, and then they will say, I don't understand it. Why don't you say it in a normal way? And that's, but that's exactly what a poet tries to do. That's also what I consider part of my function, to take away the misunderstandings about poetry. That's why I also um, go to secondary schools um, to talk to students to, and also to people I like to read in very unpoetic places, uh, to a very unpoetic audience, to show that it's a part, it's entrenched in life. It's not something that is like the, the gods of the Olympus um, detached from life. I How many, what was the proportion of people, of Dutch citizens, presumably anybody who's a Dutch citizen can vote for you as Poet Laureate, is that right? Yeah, and even also people, even also people in the UK could have voted oh, I see. for me. Any, any European citizen can vote for you? Any, yeah. Um, okay. I well, had Palestinian family members voting for me. <laughs> They couldn't leave the houses anyway, so internet is the only thing they can use. So. Well, is there any one last question? Or should we stop there? I'm sure you would like to buy one or both of these lovely and unique books, beautifully made by Banipal. Ah, still one. 
Uh, which contemporary poets do you read or are you reading? Just name one or two. Yeah, um, I must say, I, if I read contemporary poets, then most, most of them are Dutch. And I, I was uh, discussing this with Ruth already. I'm a very odd, um, the, uh, what's the expression, the odd one out. Um, I, I have a very, very fond, I'm very fond of old poetry. Middle-aged poetry. Uh, medieval. Med yeah, sorry, me medieval poetry. Uh, Middle-aged. <laughs> yeah, okay, no. Um, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for sharing. Um, uh, medieval poetry and 19th century Dutch poetry. I think they really constructed our modern language. But that's, I mean, uh, you have, and, and the, the, the poets from the 50s, uh, Remco Kampert, etc. I, I really adore them, the Dutch poets. And I must say that I'm not very well informed uh, about international modern poetry. I, not so much as I would like. Um, my knowledge stops sometimes at the level of, you know, Brodsky, etc. But then again, I read everything by, uh, by Josef Brodsky. Um, I'm not it's a failure, it's an impediment, uh, a handicap, but I cling on to sometimes a bit too much to what's there already, whereas I should broaden my scope much more to what is new. But for instance, the British, I come to London, first thing I, th I think is, oh, the British Museum. So today I was, I was, I think I was, for five hours, just there at the Akkadian, Assyrian, Sumerian, and, and Egyptian um, um, uh, but, but section. And this maybe describes a bit how my character is. I'm, uh, I'm completely fascinated by what's gone already. But science <laughs> too. I think, why don't we end on a poem? Would you like to read that poem about about um, science. The poet says to the scientist that that one, ah. <laughs> which is a sort of joke, but you were attacked for it and, and the, the yeah, reader didn't this, get the joke. There was this critic who didn't get the joke. It's, a, it's called The Conspiracy. It's about a, a poet uh, fighting science and in the end he declares himself uh, Victor? No, the, the, the winner. Uh, he sees a sort of a distinction between science and poetry, whereas I see uh, I don't see that distinction at all. But this critic thought, oh, here comes another romantic poet uh, mm -hmm. thinking he's better than, he's uh, trying to escape in poetry. But it's not about that at all. It's about a poet who doesn't understand anything about science and therefore declares himself a winner. Um, so the, it's called The Conspiracy. Science, laugh it off but it's only natural for crying out loud. It's never clicked between us, the poet, and you, measured man plus chemical woman, laboratory twins of progress, filling Petri dishes together. Sure thing, explain that away. Down white corridors I've heard otherwise, in immaculate coats exchanging proteins between yourselves, nucleotide base pairs maybe then whispering together and why do you do it and who for spit it out what are you in God's name oh my God up to I've heard all this recently from confident sources but heed my words and read lips kiddo 
or we too will cause disaster with sheet lightning and titan's thunder hold on to those richter skills sincerely hold on to me hold me your poet thank you for joining us for this london review bookshop event for more visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the london review bookshop on itunes 